Welcome to Chasing That Neon Podcast. I'm your host, Adam Pope. Join me on each episode as I interview session players, songwriters, sidemen, and women. People with great stories about the music and musicians that so many of us still love. All right, let's get to it. Friends, today I have the honor of interviewing Mr. Charlie McCoy. He is a Nashville studio legend. He's mainly known for his harmonica, or harp, playing, but he's very skilled on the guitar, bass, drums, keyboard, vibes, and a bunch of brass and wind instruments that he just would pick up from time to time and play during sessions where they were asking, hey, can somebody play that? He seems to be the guy that could do anything. He's worked with so many legends, Elvis, Bob Dylan, Johnny Cash, Simon and Garfunkel, Roy Orbison, Dolly Parton, George Jones, and I could just keep going on and on. He He's basically done this in a six-decade run in Nashville where he was one of the busiest session musicians that anybody had ever heard of, especially in the 60s and 70s. This guy was burning the candle on both ends. One of the things that I heard after the podcast, I, I was telling somebody I had had interviewed Charlie McCoy, and I heard this story, and I've got to share it now on the intro here. I heard this story about a time he was playing, I think it was for Bob Dylan, and they somebody was talking about, boy, it'd be nice to have a, a trumpet on, on the break. So so uh, Charlie McCoy's over here, just he's just playing on the bass, and <laughs> it gets around to the break, and they hear a trumpet out of nowhere, and they look, and he's he's playing open strings with his with his uh his left hand on the bass up there on the fret, and playing it well, and he's honking on the on the trumpet, right in the middle. He's doing the break <laughs> that they were talking about, so he did both at the same time. Now that might be a little folklore. But I recently heard that, and after listening to this Charlie McCoy podcast, I think you'll agree with me that that's probably true. Hello. Hello, Mr. McCoy. Yeah, that's me. Thank you so much for uh, being willing to be a part of this. I'm so honored. Well, it's uh, you're telling a story that I love to tell. Well, I, uh, I'm excited about it, and uh, you have quite the story to tell. So uh, we'll, we'll jump right into it. Like I said, I really appreciate it, and I just want to make sure you know that off the bat, that I'm, I'm honored to, to speak to you. Well, listen, uh, I, I am a guy, I'm, I'm probably the most blessed man in America, you know. All I've ever done in my life is play a little four-inch harmonica. And uh, <laughs> I've been awarded, rewarded, and played with the best there is, and uh, it's been an amazing run, I'll tell you. I watched uh, today your West Virginia Hall of Fame induction, and I loved the things you, you talked about on there, and, and I liked it when uh, when Russ Hicks came out, your fellow musician and, and bandmate, and he said, Charlie McCoy is the greatest all-around musician that's ever been, and that's that's what, that that that's true. I mean, that's what a lot of people have said over the years, and that's the uh, legacy well, fast forward a few years, I got to induct him at the same place. Oh my gosh, really? Wow. Yeah. That's awesome. Well, he deserves it too. He absolutely deserves it. Yep. Yep. Y'all sounded great on that Orange Blossom special on that thing. Well, we'll jump right into it here. You know, I read an article that several years ago you said that you think you've played on over 13,000 sessions. It, have you kept track of that since you first started? No, but uh, I'll tell you who did keep track of sessions. And he's the one who told me that figure. It's Harold Bradley. Okay. Now, you know, I don't know if, I'm sure you know his story. Uh, him and Owen built the studio, the Quonset Hut. Oh, yeah. Because all the people in the Grand Ole Opry were going out of town to make their records. And one day they just decided, this is stupid. All the musicians are here. You know, it's crazy for them to have to go someplace else. And they bought that property on 16th Avenue and they built a studio and, uh, and the rest is some amazing history. Yeah, it sure is. Now, was that when you got to town, was that the did, was it the Quonset Hut already already built there? Oh, yes. And uh, listen, they, the Quonset Hut opened, I think, in uh, like 57 or something. And. I came up here in 60 and they were, they were already cutting 
and and RCA then by then had already been built as well. Mm-hmm. Already, Brenda, Brenda Lee, Orbison, Beverly's, and Elvis were cutting major hits here. In addition to all the other country artists, right? And, and this is you know, it's funny that Nashville always had the reputation of a country music only center, but those are four of the biggest pop acts in America. And they oh, cut yeah. it from the beginning, you know. Right, yeah. And, and and pretty quickly you got it from what I can see, it seems like you got involved in, in all kinds of genres, folk, rock. Yeah, I was uh you know, timing <laughs> timing is everything. I came up uh well, you know my story. I came up in uh fifty nine out right out of high school. I had met Mel Tillis and he heard me sing a Chuck Berry song and told me if I came to Nashville, it could get me on records. So the day after graduation, high school, I drove up here and uh, they said to me, oh, Mel's out of town. <laughs> Thanks a lot. <laughs> anyway, uh, his manager, he had told his manager about me, who was Jim Denny, by the way, a Hall of Fame member himself. Yes, sir. And uh, he came and talked to me and he said, uh, Mel told me about you. You want to get some auditions? And I'm like, duh, uh, yeah. So, you know, and I didn't have a clue. You know, what's the old thing? When I was 18, I knew everything and my parents knew nothing. <laughs> it's amazing how much they learned by the time I was 21. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Anyway, I thought I knew everything and I didn't know anything. I didn't realize who any of these people were. Chet Atkins. Wow. Owen Bradley. I didn't know who they were, you know. Boy, right. Because I was a rock and roller. I, w- I wasn't into country music at all. And uh, so I went and sang my Chuck Berry song for Chet and for Owen, and they both turned me down, which was a blessing in disguise because Owen said, I'm having a session this afternoon. Would you like to come watch? And I said, uh, okay. I had nothing else to do, right? right? And I wasn't really sure what it even was. But I went back to the concert and watched a 13-year-old Brenda Lee record one of her first hits. Wow. And that when I sat there and watched that and heard those musicians and heard that playback, I said, I don't want to sing. I want to do this. Hmm. And that was, that was it for me. I went back to Florida, uh, entered the University of Miami as a music education student. But before the year was over, I dropped out because I decided I don't want to teach. I want, I want to do what I saw up there, you know. Right. So I came, I came back in 1960 to stay. Well, what do you think made Owen Bradley ask you to come back to that session? What do you think he saw in you? Well, number one, uh, Jim Denny and he were really tight. And I think, I think if it hadn't been Jim Denny brought me in there, he may not have asked me, you know. Yeah. But keep in mind that back in that day, the music community here was very small, and everybody knew everybody. And there was a lot of uh, respect that, you know, and camaraderie that went on between these so-called, you know, the head people, Chet and Owen and... Don Law and, you know, those people that were producers and studio owners. So, yeah, there, there was a lot of respect. And and so I think it was because of that that he asked me to come watch a session. That's incredible. What a, yeah. what a, what a twist of fate there. Really, really changed your life. And oh, absolutely. And, and, and you played... And when I came back, I was living with a, a songwriter from South Florida, who had moved here a couple years before I came. I knew him from down there. Kent Westbury's his name. He's a member of the Nashville Songwriters Hall of Fame. He wrote hits for Gene Watson. He had a, even had a song that the Beatles recorded. Wow. And awesome. uh, every day, almost every day, seemed like every day, somebody would come to his house and they would write. And I was fascinated by this. I would just sit there and listen and 
you know, and then one day they were working on a song and he said to me, Hey, why don't you get your harmonica and play along with us? So, okay. So I, I started playing along with him and he said, Ben, I'm going to ask if you can be on the demo session. <laughs> so I played on this demo and about a, a month passed and Jim Denny calls Kent and asks for me. And he puts me on the phone and he said, I just got a call from Chet. He's re he's going to record that song that Kent wrote. And he wants you to play exactly what you played on the <laughs> demo on the record. And it's an unknown singer from Sweden named Anne Margaret. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. And she was in Nashville recording? Her first session was here, yes. Wow. Uh, the people that were her, you know, her PR entourage and all that, their plan was to start her off as a recording artist and then to try to move her into acting. Uh-huh. It worked. Yeah, I'd say so. <laughs> yeah, it worked. So uh, so uh, we they had that session. It was in May of 1961. I'd never forget it. And I was pretty nervous you know there was the a team there was chet and when and jim denny went with me to the session chet here's the guy that played and chet looked at me and he said i know you <laughs> really? i said yeah i'll audition for you a couple of years ago singing <laughs> he said yeah you did a chuck berry song played a black uh, les paul custom right <laughs> wow what a memory. I said, yeah, that's right. And he said, man, I wish you'd have played that harmonica. We could have done something. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so anyway. No. Uh, so I already, the best thing that happened to me that day was I already knew what to play. Oh, yeah. Because needless to say, it, it was very distracting with <laughs> Chet, the Nashville A-team, the Anita Kerr singers, and... A 20-year-old Ann Margaret. Yeah, that's what I thought you were going to say first. Ann Margaret, <laughs> you got yeah. there. Man, yeah. the, I, so, that's amazing. It, it, that, yeah, so uh, we, we, we recorded the song, and uh, when this, at the end of the session, Bob Moore was a bass player. He walked over to me, and he said, You free Friday? <laughs> hey, I was free the rest of my life, you know? Yeah. And I said, yeah, I'm, I'm free. He said, come back here. I'm recording Roy Orbison. Oh, my Whoa. goodness. I was already a big fan of Roy Orbison. Oh, yeah. And we went in and did the song Candyman. And when that record hit the radio, my phone started ringing. And 59 years later, it's still ringing. Yeah. Well, I mean, just the the intro of that song is is just all you. And who who made that call to to put you on the signature lick right there? Just well, that is incredible. The way it happened was that uh, they were running the song down, and uh, Roy just said out loud to everyone, "Someone come up with an intro. We need an intro on this." Well, I got an idea right away, but I thought. Man, I, I, I shouldn't say anything. I'm, I'm yeah. the new kid here, you know. And they said, no. and we went for a little while longer. And they said, come on, come on, come on. Somebody come up with an intro. So I walked over to Harold Bradley, who I knew, because he was the leader on those demo sessions I had been playing on. Right. And I said, Harold, I got an idea, you know. And I said, what if I played this? And then everybody joined me on this. And Harold said, Hey, everybody, everybody, Charlie's got the intro. Oh, my God. Yeah. And what an so, intro it was. Uh, I, yeah. I love that song. Yeah, so that, anyway, that's how it all started. So what was a normal session day like after that? Once you, I mean, so now you're you're getting calls, phones ringing off the hook. I mean, how many hours are you working on 16th and 17th Avenue every well, day? You know, I'm I'm doing probably to begin with. I'm doing uh, you know six to eight sessions a week, and then it started picking up, picking up, picking up, and and uh, and then uh, you know in the late 60s through the 70s, it was like 
it was crazy, just crazy. And uh, I must say that uh, I learned so much from the what we what everyone knows as the Nashville A team uh, that Harold was a part of, and Floyd Kramer and Grady mm-hmm. Martin, Bob Moore, Buddy Harmon. You know, right. I learned so much from those guys, and they taught me that. Their philosophy was this. The singer and the song or the picture, we are the frame. Wow. Our, our job is to frame the picture, not to distract from it. And, uh, and that was their, that was their uh, MO, and uh, that's the way they always did it, and they were right. Absolutely. <laughs> they were right. Proof is in the pudding, man. No doubt. Oh, yeah, absolutely. absolutely. Do, do you miss that kind of cohesion with album making and tracking that they used to to approach it that way and all at the same time in one room? You know, uh, exactly, because, you know, they didn't have the technology to do it any other way. Mm-hmm. You had to make the record. Last summer, I did an uh, interview with somebody from BBC, and uh, we were... Uh, he was talking about, uh, you know, Nashville and all this. And I said, so I started telling him about the A-team, how important it was. and all that. He said, listen, he said, listen, I know in America, you guys got the wrecking crew. You've got Muscle Shoals, Memphis, Motown. I said, let me tell you the difference. Wrecking crew, all written arrangements. Mm-hmm. Motown, Memphis, Muscle Shoals, no clock. Wow. I said, these guys were expected to do three or four songs they'd never heard before and make the record in three hours. The Nashville 18. That's the difference. Yeah. And I must say, I'm so proud of this, that the philosophy they had and the way of working has has passed along through all these years and that the new guys working today, of course, now they have all this technology, you know, mm-hmm. if they want to work on a guitar solo for two hours, they, they have the technology to do it, but still the basic idea is still the same. Right. Yeah. Y'all built the foundation. And yeah. At what, do you remember the first time you worked with Neil Matthews of the Jordan Airs and y'all worked on oh. the number system? Okay. Here's that. Here's that story. So, I went to, when I was here auditioning. I went to that Brenda Lee session, and of course, I went back to the hotel and I couldn't already sleep at night. I was so excited about what I'd seen and heard. <laughs> that night, phone rings. It's Jim Denny. He says, "Cause I was scheduled to take off back to Florida the next morning," and he says. Hey, there's a session, another session tomorrow morning. You want to go watch? <laughs> and I thought, try and keep me away. Yeah. So I said, yes, of course. So we went back to the concert hut. It was a session. Uh, Carl Butler. I know this is way before your time, but there was Carl Butler. Uh, they, him and his wife, uh, they had a huge hit back in the, 60s you know anyway so yeah i said uh, absolutely so i went back and he went with me because there was a different producer now right right and he wanted to make sure it was okay that i went in there Uh to watch this session so uh we walked in and i saw the jordan airs over there and i didn't I thought they only worked for Elvis. I had no idea they were working every day in this town, play, singing on records, you know. Yeah. And so I, I said to him, I said, isn't that the Jordan Airs? He said, yeah, you want to meet them? Hmm. I said, yeah. So we went over and he introduced me to Neil. And we're talking a little bit. Where are you from, son? I said, well, I'm up from South. I came up here from South Florida, you know. And I... Through the corner of my eye, I saw a yellow, a yellow tablet on his music stand with these numbers on it. And I finally, I said, uh, do you mind if I look at this a second? He said, no, no, go ahead. 
And I'm looking at this, and I th- see I had I had a experimental. I was in an experimental high school in Florida. They decided to experiment with music theory. Wow! And they said uh, between our junior and senior year, there was a bulletin board said anyone interested in music theory sign up if you know where middle c is you go in advanced (laughs) so so i went in advanced music theory and i'm telling you what what i learned in that high school class allowed me to skip four semesters of college theory goodness gracious The, the teacher was that's the reason they used our school because of the teacher and she was she was awesome, you know. So anyway, I had all this theory in my head, right? Uh-huh. And I'm looking at these numbers, and all of a sudden I thought, and he asked me, he said, you know what that is? And I said, I think I do. And he said, well, you're the only musician around here that does. <laughs> and I thought to myself, this is totally brilliant. <laughs> this oh, is yeah. really brilliant. And so I, I drove back to Miami. Now I not only had uh, the session, these musicians, but these, this number of stuff that I saw. And I thought, my God, this place is, this place is amazing. You know, Nashville is amazing. <laughs> yeah. So I went back, and I, after I got back here, a couple years passed. I'm doing sessions now, and my buddy... Uh, guitar player Wayne Moss right he started doing a lot of sessions too and one day this is about 1963 we're on a session together and he said we we finished the song and they took a break and he said hey let me ask you a question you know that stuff Neil writes over there and I said yeah he said you understand that and I said yeah I do he said could you explain it to me? So I started trying to explain it to Wayne. And every time we'd be on a session then later together, he would write the song down and said, come here and see if this is right. Wow. And one day, Harold walks over. What are you guys doing? I said, I'm showing Wayne what Neil's writing. He said, show me. Wow. That's how it started. You you were you were communicating what Neil was using just to help the Jordanaires know what to do, and you you basically carried it over yeah. to musicians. And now your impact isn't just on these records. I mean, think about all these people. I mean, I've I'm using the, the number system, and it goes right back to those moments you're telling me about. This is yeah, incredible. Uh, I was. <laughs> I, I was the one I spread the news. Yeah, you did. I, I was the I was the delivery system from Jordan Harris to musicians. I guess <laughs> that's that is a great story. I love that man. I, I'm a big nerd for this stuff, so I I could I could listen to you all day. I now I, I got down here. I saw where you said Bob Johnson uh, claimed he used you as bait to get Dylan to Nashville, and that that's a big deal when Dylan came here. And you were okay. used as bait? Yeah. Uh, well, here's the story. Bob Johnson was a songwriter from Texas. He was writing for the Elvis Presley Music Group. He calls me out of the blue one day and introduced himself and told me what he was trying to do. And he said, man, I need some really great demos. I want to come to Nashville and I want you to hire people and go in with me and make demos on my songs. I said, okay, you know, we, we'll do that. Yeah. So we, we went in and we made, we probably, I don't know, recorded with him three or four times over a couple of years and making demos for Elvis movies. And he actually ended up with five or six songs in Elvis movies. But anyway, I didn't know that. Uh, so he was one of these people that. Uh, so when he when he didn't get his song in an Elvis movie, he'd take it and pitch it other places, right? And he goes to Columbia Records in New York, and he's playing these songs for the head of A and R. And this guy asked him, he said, "God, these demos are great. Where did you record these?" And he said, "Well, in Nashville." 
And then he asked him the magic question. He said, did you produce these? You know, it's producer is the most overused word in the music business. (laughs) And he said, and he thought of it and he said, yes. He said, you think you'd like to be a record producer? Yes. Nice. (laughs) He said, "Uh, you know what? Uh, We've got an artist on the last session of our contract and if nothing happens, we're going to drop her. You think you might like to take a shot? And he said, well, who is it? He said, it's Patty Page. Wow. So using the c- connections he'd made with the Elvis Presley Music Group in uh, L.A., he found a movie that had a theme that needed recorded. So he calls me up and he said, hey, I'm going to do a session for Columbia Records on Patty Page. (laughs) He said, hire the guys. Also, hire a string section. What? A string section. He said, yes. And uh, we'll come in with arrangements for the strings. We're going to do this song. And the song was called Hush, Hush, Sweet Charlotte. Wow which became a movie theme and yeah. saved her deal with Columbia momentarily anyway. And uh, so Columbia Records thought they'd found their white knight now. Oh, yeah, for sure. And they, they came to him and said, oh, this is fantastic. How would you like to record Bob Dylan? <laughs> wow. And, From- and, and he said, yes. <laughs> so he calls me. He moved to New York, and he called me, and he said, listen, I'm living in New York now. If you come up here, I can get you Broadway tickets. I said, okay, it's good to know. Uh, late 1964, or the end of the summer, the, the World's Fair was playing in New York. And so my wife and I, my ex-wife and I, decided to go to the World's Fair. So we wow. go to New York. We get in, check in a hotel. I give him a call. Hey, I'm here. How about my tickets? <laughs> he said, hey, no problem. Listen, uh, tomorrow afternoon, you think you could come by Columbia Studio? I want you to meet Bob Dylan. I said, okay. So I, I go over and go to Columbia Studio. I walk in the door, and he introduced me to Dylan, and he doesn't say hello or anything. He says, Listen, I'm getting ready to do a song. Why don't you get that other guitar over there and play along? <laughs> Dylan says uh, that to you? Okay. And it, the song was Desolation Row <laughs> on the Highway 61 album. Wow. So we had, the, the song was 11 minutes long. 11 we minutes. We had time to do it twice because the <laughs> bass player had another session to go to. It was the bass player and Dylan and me on the guitar and I was the whole time I was sitting there thinking oh my god what would Grady Martin do (laughs) (laughs) yeah because I had all the all the stuff you know all the lead so uh anyway a couple months later he calls me back well it's we're into 65 now I think it was February he said hey call the guys Dylan's coming to Nashville Wow. Really? Wow. He said, yeah. So, uh, and right before we hung up, he said, by the way, I don't know if you know it, but I was using you for bait. (laughs) (laughs) What? He said, Dylan nor his manager wanted, he didn't want to come to Nashville and his manager didn't want him to. He said, but after the session, Desolation Row session, he decided to give it a try. Absolutely. So he came back and we did Blonde on Blonde, his biggest career album. Right there at Quonset Hut, right? No, no, we were upstairs in Studio A. Oh, in Studio A. Nice. See, uh, Owen sold the studio to Columbia Records. Yeah. And the Quonset Hut was booked around the clock. So they decided, hey, if we had another studio, we could even get more business. Yeah. So they built Studio A, and nobody would use it because, you know, music people are superstitious. Yeah. And they thought, hey, all the hits are cut in a concert. 
Right. And so when he when he decided to bring Dylan, he calls down there to try to book studio time, and they say all the studio time's already taken. He said, "But this is Bob Dylan," and they said, "We don't care." <laughs> You know, we've already, we've got this book to our regular clients, right? Right. And so they said, but we have a new studio upstairs, Studio A, and you can have it for as many hours as you want. Did, isn't that said, where, I'll, I'll take it. Isn't that where so, Simon and Garfunkel recorded eventually as well up there? Yep, studio A? Yeah. And he, he took it for the whole week. Oh, the whole uh, week. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so we did Blonde and Blonde. Man, that, and you just you just somehow walk into these iconic situations, and I mean, obviously, it's not just somehow. You you uh, you you were the right place at the right time, but also Absolutely. you put in the Absolutely. you put in the, the right work. Place and, at the right time. That's so great. So I've actually had conversations with friends of mine about who is the voice hollering back to Johnny Cash when he says, "You going to Florida?" On Orange Blossom, and that was the janitor at the the at janitor concert hut. He was a black guy named Ed Grizzard. Really? Yes. I thought you were going to say Chris Christopherson for no, a second. No. <laughs> no. And uh, Ed had a he had a little side business. He he would he he like made all the coffee and all that stuff, but he would run and get beer for the guys if they wanted it. Right. You know, of course I. <laughs> I was, I, I made it a point never to drink on sessions, but the, the, the main, the old established guys like Ray Enton and Grady, Grady, they would have a beer here and there. Right. And this guy would go get their beer for them. And that, so that's what he was doing, cleaning up the studio, making the coffee, and going after beer. And somehow in the middle of all that, he, he, he gets called in to play this part with Johnny. Yeah, that's great. <laughs> they they asked him to do this talking part with Johnny Cash. Yeah. Yeah. So, what's the first session you remember you played with Elvis? It was the movie soundtrack Harem Scarum. Oh man. <laughs> I think it was the worst movie he ever made. Yeah. And, and the the reason it happened, you know, he had the they had a regular group of guys that worked for him all the time. Right. Bob Moore, Floyd Kramer, Buddy Harmon. Well, the movie company, sound, the, the movie, they changed the dates for their soundtrack recording. So they call in and uh, I think Scotty Moore was their contact, you know, and said, Scotty, uh, we're changing the dates. Change all the musicians. And he said, look, uh, I'm not sure about this. You know, uh, they may be booked. And they said, hey, it's Elvis, it's Elvis. <laughs> and he said, uh, you know, in Nashville, it's different here. We don't cancel out on one artist to work with another, no matter who it is. But right. he said, I'll, I'll call and make some make some calls for you. Well, he did. He called them all, and they were all booked. And he calls them back and said, look, uh, i got to book an alternative group. And they said, what? You can't. You mean they won't get out of their other stuff? And he said, no. But listen, this town's full of great musicians. Don't worry about it. So they they let him go, and he called uh, Pig Robbins, Grady Martin, Kenny Buttry, Henry Strzelecki, myself, and I forget. Uh, maybe I don't. I don't remember who else was it. Yeah. Anyway, so we went in and did the uh, Harem Scarum soundtrack. He had to be bored out of his mind compared to what you saw later when you were working with him. I mean, I'm just guessing. I, I can't imagine if the energy had to have been the same from him. Well, I, I know I know. in the middle of those sessions, he, he said, hey guys, listen, I know these songs aren't very good, but let's do the best we can with them. Wow. Yeah. That's great. But then when he came back for that marathon, you know, that, yeah, the in seventy June of seventy. Yeah, yeah. I mean, he was fired up because he was in charge. He had picked the material, and yeah, he was really fired up about that. Yeah, and that's, I ended up doing twelve albums with him. And, and and it just that particular run you're talking about, 
uh, I just that they put a box set out with that recently. You probably know this, right. Right. and I've been listening to it and just listening to y'all work. It just sounds like it was a blast. It was. It was. Uh, you know, he was. I was. Uh, of course, all of us that first session. You know, none of us knew what to expect. And he walked in the door. He was one of those guys like. You know what? I mean, he commanded attention. He walks in the door and, you know, it's Johnny Cash was a guy like that. Yeah. He commanded attention. Uh, Elvis walks in the door and uh, you're like, whoa. And <laughs> first thing he did, he walks over to every musician, shakes their hand and said, thank you for helping me. Wow. Yeah. And from that moment on, you know. Man, we were in. Oh, absolutely. Let's yeah. Let's do this, you know. Were you, and even though the music was not so great. <laughs> yeah, not all of it. But, man, there's some great, great stuff on that, on that, uh, at least that 1970 album he did there. Oh, I know it. Ain't nothing in this world that I don't know. And I remember when he met Jerry Reed, he was really fired up. That's what I was going to bring up. I mean, you read my mind. I was about to ask you, you're on Big Boss Man, right? Yeah. Okay, I love that song. I've jammed to it so many times. Can you tell me about Jerry Reed coming in the studio and playing guitar? Was that planned, or did they... Was that sort well, of like last second? You know, Felton Jarvis got involved with uh, Elvis, and uh, he was responsible for getting Jerry in. And, and Elvis just... He was... He was mesmerized by Jerry. Oh, I bet. And, uh, you know, I mean, and so he wanted, uh, when he, Jerry played Guitar Man for him, he wanted to record it. And, uh, the, of course, this, his people, you know, his management people were like, wait a minute, we didn't publish that song. See if you can get a publishing deal with them. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, of course, they said no. And they said, well, uh, you know, Elvis, he said, I don't care. I don't care who published it. I want to do it. So yeah. he, he stepped up and, uh, and you know, called down his, his management people and said, we're going to do this song. Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah. and it turned out, I mean, all, all those, <laughs> Jerry, those Jerry Reed songs that he did were just fantastic. Did you eat a lot of cheeseburgers in Elvis sessions? You know what? When when he got to where he was working all night, they would bring in food. You know, about eleven or twelve. Right. And uh, maybe burgers. Yeah. Yeah. Because <laughs> you know he would go over to Spence Manor and sleep all day. Yeah. And then we'd start we'd start at uh, six o'clock with him, and uh, and he wanted to work all night. I remember one morning I got out just in time to go to breakfast. And make my 10 a.m. session. I was going to say, that had to be hard on you when he was in town. Was, well, we were young, you know. It was it was easier. <laughs> yeah. Man, you've just been so fascinating with all these stories. And you've got such a personal touch in the way you share them. You know, it's not like a, it's not like I'm reading a Wikipedia page here. I mean, you are really, you're putting me right in the room with y'all. I appreciate that. You were the music director at Hee Haw for the Hee Haw TV show. And yeah. Uh, for 19 years, is that correct? 19 years you worked? Uh, well, I was on the show 18 years. I was music director for 17. Okay. And what what was that? What was that like? Was Roy Clark a lot of? Was he just crazy all the time, or just absolutely? <laughs> really? So that wasn't but just the, on the on way camera. It started was uh, I got called in to play on two songs on a on a show behind Ray Charles. They wanted a little more of a, I don't know, they wanted a little more of a R&B touch or something. So they decided that harmonica and they brought in Kenny Buttry to play drums. And we did two songs with uh, Ray Charles. Well, after the show, uh, the boss man who was Sam Lovello, he was a producer, he called me in and he said, hey, uh, I'd like for you to consider becoming a part of the E-All band. Wow. And I said, 
man, I don't know. I'm, I'm, I'm working around the clock. You know, he said, really, the band doesn't spend that much time here. And, uh, uh, so afterwards, uh, I thought about it, thought about it. And I just said, you know what? I think I'll try it one half season. And I don't know if you're familiar with the way the show was recorded, but, uh, I'm not. they would do, uh, in June, they would do 13 shows, which would air from September to New Year's. And then in October, they would do 13 more, which would air from New Year's to April. And then they would rerun the whole set. That's the way they did that show. The, the wow. model of, re, of production was modeled after Rowan and Martin's Laugh-In. I don't know if you're old enough to remember that show, but... I don't, know. Okay. Laugh-In was just like Hee Haw without all the country stuff. <laughs> okay. And, and it came first. It was it was on TV before Hee Haw. So, anyway, that was the, pl- that was the model. Uh, and the idea was, when you went into the studio, you never made a whole show. All you made was segments. The whole show was done in editing. Right. So we'd have music days and comedy days, and then whole cast days. The, so the band ended up being in there maybe eight or nine days a month. So, yeah, it was something you could pull off, huh? Yeah, yeah. that was all, eight or nine days a month. Because what they would do was they would have a music day. They'd have four guests that day. Two in the morning, two in the afternoon. And those guests would do two songs each and some little short comedy bit, maybe a cornfield thing or, yeah. you know, whatever. And that that was their formula for the music days. Then the other days when they had the whole cast, we'd do picking and grinning. Uh, and then we would come in sometimes to pre-record like these... Uh, these play-ins and play-outs to these comedy bits, like uh, we don't go around spreading rumors, you know, yeah. uh, or the the part where the the old guy and the hound dog is there, you know, blue, blue, <laughs> agony on me, whoa, you know that part. Yeah, I don't know if you've seen the show. But I have. Anyway, yeah. so that that's anyway. It was uh, it was not a lot of time in the month for musicians. So I said, okay, this works all right. And it was so much fun because, man, you walk in a door, you're surrounded by legends. Absolutely. I mean, there's, you know, Roy Clark, oh, Buck Owens, Grandpa Jones, Minnie Pearl, Roy Acuff, you know, I mean, yeah. geez. And so after the first half season, after we finished, I thought, you know what, this was fun. And then Sam Lovello calls me in the office on the last day and he said uh we'd like for you to consider being band leader wow the band needs a leader (laughs) and i said i'll tell you what sam i'll try it for a half season okay so we came back we did another half season the end of that season he calls me in again and he said listen uh, our music director george ritchie is leaving the show He's marrying Tammy Wynette, and we would like for you to consider being music director. Whoa. Yeah. He said, believe me, it won't take any more time than what you're already doing. I said, okay, I'll try it a half season. <laughs> well, 17 years later, I was still trying it. Yeah. It was it was so much fun. The amazing thing about you is all these opportunities pop up, and you just say, yeah. And it seems to me that you don't really always know if it's a good idea or if you should do it, but you just say yes anyway to see, see how it goes. Well, you know, in the music business, you say yes and figure it out. And I mean, is that for how the most you, part. Is that how you uh, learned all those instruments? T- when you say no, it's done. It, you don't have another shot at it, you know? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Is that- and I knew the band very well. You know, they were all good friends of mine. And uh, they were they were on board with it. Actually, they were the ones on board with me being the leader of the band. Oh sure, yeah, yeah. So so that made it that made it easier to make a decision. The fact that the band was on board already. 
Well, I, we haven't talked about it, but I'd like to, to point out real quick that not only, you know, for folks who might be listening to this who, who, don't, who, who don't know, you, we've talked about your harmonica playing, but you played guitar, saxophone, drums. I mean, the list goes on and on. And, and these are things you picked up because you were a guy that said yes. Is that, is that right? <laughs> well, drums was, but uh, no, I was, uh, I was always fascinated by instruments and I was, I I was one of these people I'd see an instrument and I said, I I, want to try this. Yeah. So, uh, I figured, you know, I, I, I could play a few notes on a sax on a trumpet. Uh, and I learned, uh, vibraphone and marimba, you know, that was, that was very cool. How many sessions do you think you did playing vibes? Cause you're, you're on quite a few records doing that. aren't you? Yeah. I played quite a few, uh, and, and as time goes by, you know, about all I play much anymore on studio work is harmonica and vibes. Yeah. Uh, there's so many amazing musicians here now. God, the pool is so deep. Oh, for sure. Yeah. And uh, so, you know, it's, yeah. But I love, uh, I love to, in fact, the way it started was in the mid-60s uh, on a session for Chet. And uh, he comes out to me and he said, hey, uh, I don't hear any harmonica on this next song. Uh, why don't you play a couple of notes on the vibes? And I said, Jed, I don't play vibes. He said, oh, go on out there. You can do it. <laughs> well, that's uh, what I mean. You just it, said, yeah. It's a keyboard, and I, I know the keyboard, you know. Right. And I got the I got the feel of the pedal, you know, the sustained pedal. And, and, uh, and, after, and I was out there, and I'm thinking, Man, this is fun. <laughs> yeah. I'm going to learn to do this. I start. I learned on that set at, that's at RCAB. It's still in there. Yeah, it's still yeah. there. So fantastic. Well, before I let you go, before I, I want to ask you one more thing. You had, during the West Virginia Music Hall of Fame speech you made, you mentioned how your wife loves you in spite of your music addiction, which I loved that. And... <laughs> And how God loves you, and and I just I just thought that that was really cool the way you wrapped that that speech up and sort of tied a bow on all of the things that you've been a part of and accomplishments that you've made and and you you kind of brought it back to your wife and 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 the Lord and I just thought that was a great touch and 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 how how much has of that has played a big role in in continuing to empower you for success in your life? Well, I, you know, it's, it's, uh, well, number one, I have, a, this is, by the way, this is my second wife, but we've been married 33 years. Wow. And, uh, uh, she, she had a heads up in understanding the music business. She worked at the union musicians union for 19 years. Her grandfather was the president for 37 years. Oh my goodness. He was the guy that guided the record business into the union here. George Cooper was his name. And uh, so anyway, so she totally understood the music business and she she was uh, always having these, you know, characters come in the office. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and she, so she, she had understood all this business. So she and, married her uh, a character. You know, uh, I think my first wife, uh, I, you know, she's a, she's a fantastic human being, the best mother my kids could have had. But I think she thought that after a while I should like, okay, slow down and, uh, you know, maybe back out of this a little bit. But what she failed to understand was that you don't say no here. Right. If you say no enough, they quit calling you. Absolutely. And besides, I loved it, you know. Yeah. I loved it. I loved these sessions. I'd love to go to work, you know, and play on these records. But anyway, so that's, anyway, so, uh, but I realized early on, too, that, uh, you know, there's, uh, so somebody, I have a friend, the best way I can explain this is that I have a friend, one of my best friends, he's a Dutch guy, toured with me in France many times. And he was he was a confirmed atheist, hmm. and he said one day he said, "Man, explain to me what it is that you think about that you believe in." I said, "Okay, 
listen to this. I said, three things. Number one, uh, the church is over 2,000 years old and is still going strong. Right. Number two, Israel is surrounded by people who want them off of the face of the earth and they're thriving. Mm. And number three, the Bible was written by many different people, many, many miles apart, many years apart, and they had no cell phones, no social media, no email, so they could coordinate their stories. Right. And the theme is all the same. I said, that's, that's what, that's what brings me in. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, that is awesome. And I, I'm just so grateful you took time to, uh, to, to let me talk to you and ask you some questions tonight. I, I know you've probably talked about these things millions of times. And so it, it, it means a lot, um, that you did that. Well, I believe in what happens here, what's happened here, and the guys who started it here, because I think they were, the, the whole beginning of this was so brilliant that, uh, you know, I mean, they they could never get enough credit. And uh, I'm just, I was so proud that they let me join them, you know, at 20 years old. <laughs> oh, yeah. What an education. You couldn't buy that education. <laughs> no way, not at all. But that's right, absolutely. You know, it's, it's little stories like on one day at the Quonset Hut, on three back-to-back sessions, Mercury Records recorded three number one records. Golly, Ahab the A Rab Ray Stevens, Walk On By Leroy Van Dyke, and Wooden Heart by what's his Joe Dowell. Three the same day, the same musicians. Three different sessions, three number one records. I mean, I wasn't on any of it, but I'm saying that is that is amazing. I feel so blessed. I've got a huge birthday in March, and uh, but I'm healthy, and I'm still excited about music. And uh, as long as the, the man who lives in my mirror <laughs> approves of what I do, I will continue to do this. Well, I hope I hope you keep on, man. We're, we'll keep looking for you, and uh, we certainly appreciate it. And everybody, this, this is Mr. Charlie McCoy, and uh, thank you so much for your time tonight. Adam, my pleasure, and uh, y'all stay safe, okay? Hey, you too. Sir.